Welcome to the Kenmore Church Podcast. We are all about filling hearts and fueling mission. We hope this content builds your heart and mind and equips you to reveal Jesus in this season of your life. Welcome back. And today we're talking about the fact that when the Word of God comes into your life, it changes things. His Word builds faith, changes perspective, changes the way we look at ourselves and the world and how it's going to look as we go forward in that. And if you picture, for example, the story in John chapter 4 where the, the woman is at the well, the Samaritan woman who's just got in her mind such a dodgy past and she confronts, uh, walks into Jesus up there at the well. She's uh, pulling water out of there and he manipulates the conversation to bring around the whole idea that he has living water to give. And just how hard it was for her in that instance to be able to engage with Jesus because culturally it was inappropriate, but he's trying to bring around eternal values and she's saying, it can't happen because of this. It can't happen because of that. Look at me. Look at my history. Look at my culture. Look at who I am. Look at who you are. And Jesus, with his words, just breaks right through all of that. And in a heartbeat, literally, changes her life, changes her outlook and the way it will go forward. A word of God is like that. And today, through the scriptures, I just want to pull out a few examples quickly of how the word of God can come into our life as it did with characters in the Bible. And he just pierced the darkness of our mind, changes circumstances by changing attitudes and how that can mould our life. Because at times we need God's word. We feel like we're in our lowest time. We're feeling like we're at least deserving of it. And it's in those moments sometimes he just breaks through and says, I need you to know that I'm here. I need you to know that there's hope. I need you to know that you need to change the way you're thinking and you're viewing what's possible because it's stopping you from being and fulfilling what I have for you. And so the Word of God makes a difference. And the way I'd like to begin today is just with the story of Gideon from Judges chapter 6. Gideon's circumstance in that day is uh, one that none of us would want to be in. He's literally, we find himself as the, the uh, dialogue starts in a wine press, which is a big underground vat, more or less, where he's, he's uh, secretly threshing grain and, and hiding it from the marauding uh, Midianites who come regularly and just take all their grain Uh, take away their wives, just decimate their communities. And they've been doing it for year after year. And he's fed up with it. Gideon is a a young guy and he's just saying, I've got no choices in here. Life's been robbed from me. And he's angry. He's angry at the Midianites. He's angry at God. These are God's people. And his rationale has been, well, where's God in all this? How could this possibly be what he wants for for his people? And it's in that very situation, at the bottom of his thinking, at the bottom of the well, God himself comes and pierces the darkness and it opens up a new possibility for him. So we pick it up in Judges 6, verse 12. It says, When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us over to the hand of Midian. The Lord said to him, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Interesting dialogue. You see the way that Gideon's trying to engage at one level and God's uh, relating back at a completely different level. And you can just look at the sequence that's happening there. God reminds him with the first opening sentence that there's a game-changing element here. He's saying, the Lord is with you, young man. You know, and he, So he opens the conversation, bringing in a whole different reality to the one that Gideon feels like is the actual reality. He thinks God's long gone. God comes in and says, I'm with you. But at the end of that sentence, he also then says, uh, calls him by a name that he would never have dreamed about. He opens up a potential reality that was never part of Gideon's logic. He felt like a victim. God calls him 
a mighty warrior. And so it's almost like Gideon looks behind him and goes, who are you talking to? Um, I know you're some substance here, but this is not a mighty warrior. What's this thing that you're, you, you're calling me here? This is not my future. This is not who I am. He goes on in later, later uh, verses to say, I'm the least of the least clan. How could I ever be the one to fulfill this? And, and you can almost sense the frustration sometimes in the way God uh, responds to the way we respond to him. We come back with negativity, uh, impossibility. And so you see that what, the way he responds to Gideon's uh, situation there is to really almost ignore him. Because Gideon reminds the Lord of all the things where he believes that the Lord's uh, failed and why this situation is uh, like utterly impossible. And it's a bitterness to his spirit. And as God talks back to Gideon, it's almost like he completely ignores what he says. He only relates to Gideon from his view of reality. He says, look, whatever you've said about this circumstance, however you're viewing it, I'm not buying into that. And it just says, go. I'm telling you to go. Go in the strength that you've got. If you don't believe that I'm going to be with you, then just take a step. Just start moving. You're about to see something happen that you could never imagine. And so he just sends him off and just says, go in your own strength. And Gideon is one of these people that we could probably all relate to. He's a complainer. At least that's how he starts. Uh, Australians, we call them whingers, whiners. Uh, the ones who just, they see what's going on and they just reflect it through a negative lens. At their heart, they really want, they have a desire to see things be better. Um, but it, it, they can't really steward that in their own mind very well. They can't steward the tension between what could be and what is. They grow bitter and, and a little bit disconnected, they get cynical eventually. And sometimes uh, if that goes far enough, they actually become the problem uh, just, just because of the way they think. Instead of seeing possibilities, they're just seeing it as a problem that can't be solved. And so many times uh, I've used the same logic that God did with Gideon, with complainers. We just say, look, let's just begin. Let's just get started. You think it's impossible. Let's just see how far we can get. And it's amazing how often in that situation you begin to see God work in amazing ways. So I wonder if you're a bit of a whiner. Uh, we all go there sometimes. We all have our good days and bad days. And so we need to say, well, there's a different way to be. And what we need to realize is that uh, when we're whining, when we're negative, it's not what people want to hear. Nobody wants to be in a negative conversation. Um, the world finds it very difficult to just continually and keep listening to that. So we've got to own that. We've got to own that about ourselves. You have the right to be negative, but everyone has a right to disengage. And so we've got to turn this thing around. We've got to steward better the negative stuff that goes on inside our mind. And you'll often find that God won't agree with your logic either. So you'll find he hasn't got much to say to your arguments either. Uh, he'll just talk as if you didn't say that, just as, as God did to Gideon. But the harsh reality of all this is that for all of us whiners, we may well be the uh, solution to the problem. The fact that we can see it, we're seeing what's accurate, we're just not processing it well. And so God breaks in and he changes the perspective and say, what you're seeing is true, that you've got a problem with it, so do I, and I want you to be part of the solution. But because we're stewarding the whole thing negatively, we haven't seen that part. All we've seen is the problem. And so God calls us to look to the potential, not based on what we bring. He says, don't forget, I am with you. I am with you. Factor in the whole idea here that there's a God factor involved. And so with that in mind, anything's possible. So that's where God's work can break into that sort of situation. But what about a completely different one? What about the story of Esther from the Old Testament in the whole book of Esther? You hear a story of a young woman who was probably saw herself as the least empowered to have a voice in the changing of a whole nation. And yet this, this one personality being open to God using them 
turned what was uh, completely impossible into what we look in retrospect as being inevitable. And the story of Esther just unfolds in this whole situation where as a young woman, she's in a foreign land. She's exiled. She's powerless. She's, she's unnoticed. She's unvalued. She's non-influential. And she could well have lived and died as, as millions and billions of people have since that day. And no one would have known her story. But she was, uh, through various means, inducted into the harem of Xerxes, the great king of the day. And apparently she was a bit of a looker because uh, she found great favour and became queen in that land. But behind the scenes, there was a plot afoot by uh, a quite an angry man who pl- used to play politics well in that whole scene. And he was plotting because of his offence with the Jews to wipe out this entire nation. Um, but access to the king by the Jews was forbidden by this stage. And yet the king didn't know that his queen was actually a Jew. And so while he'd signed off on the whole deal to wipe out an entire nation, he didn't realise that his wife was one of them. And yet she, her access to the king had been forbidden by custom. She couldn't just walk into the king's presence and say, hey, there's something wrong here. And so this whole situation came about where she felt powerless to help her own nation. She felt powerless to influence the king because of the customs of the day and the etiquette about her life. And so we zoom in in Esther chapter 4 where her uncle uh, really pulls her up about this and confronts her situation and about how she deals with it. He says this, Do not think that because you are in the king's house that you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. I just love the courage of the woman. In the end, she sees that her voice, as small as it may be, is going to be the only voice. And when a cause has found its time, uh, the voice finds its voice. That which previously was like a mouse becomes a lion's roar. And she just realizes, well, whether I live or I die, this is a cause worth doing that for. And so she commits herself to that path. And I love the way she covered herself there. She didn't say, well, I'm just going to bring it in my own strength. She says, we need God for all this. This is a factor in all of this. God's word always includes God getting involved. When he speaks to your potential and what's going to happen, he always brackets that by saying, I am with you. And so Esther says, well, if this is going to um, happen, if this is going to work at any level, we need God involved. So pray, everyone, pray. And uh, if you read the whole book of Esther, you see that this worked out gloriously for her, her influence was leveraged way beyond where it should have been. God opened doors because God was involved. So the smallest of voice, your, your voice may be small, but if the cause is right, if the time is right, if God gets involved, incredible things can happen. So that's another story from the Old Testament. Let's look at one more. This story I love because it's often been seen, interpreted, read as very different to the way I want to present it to you today. It's a story of Elijah. And Elijah, when he hears God's voice, rather than speaking God's voice as his prophet, when he finally hears God's voice, it's incredible the shift that takes place in this one man's life. The context of the story, and you can pick it up in 1 Kings, uh, but Elijah has been selected by God. He's a prophetic voice. He's confronted kings. Uh, He's held back rain from the land. He's called down fire and prophets of Baal have been killed. It's It's an absolutely incredible story of the demonstration of God's power and fire from heaven. 
And so Elijah's a bit, he's got a big dose of hubris about this because he's God's man and whatever he says seems to happen. He's obviously anointed, he's powerful, uh, and I can think slightly arrogant if you can read between the lines of the text. But what that's done for him is said that his calling has probably in some ways outstretched the level of his character. Because when things don't go quite to plan, when the stool that he's sitting on starts to get a bit shaken and there's a chance for a fall there, we start to see that his character can't keep, can't keep up with the demands of his calling. And so this bite of criticism comes. Uh, the queen, Jezebel, puts a contract out in this guy's life. He's never had this happen to him before. Now he's actually under real threat. Now there's people looking for him to kill him. It's been one thing to be on the other side of that equation, but this is a first for him. And so this can happen in our life. Um, he knew uh, how to work with God to perform, but he didn't have faith for God to protect. And so his whole inner world begins to implode. He had assumptions about how his life was going to turn out and how it was going to look, and it didn't include opposition. And there's no way to build character in the absence of opposition. There's no way to form your soul and build capacity in the absence of trouble. Everything's easy when everything goes right. You don't learn anything when things are going well. You learn it in the midst of the cauldron, in the dark night of the soul, when things don't go your way. So I wonder if you've ever had a moment like this in your life before we read the text, ever had the pedestal that you're on be bumped? You know, you've, you've had a pretty good run. Your job is good. Your publicity is good, if I could put it that way. Your family's all together. Everybody thinks highly of you. And you haven't had the work yet on the resilience of your character. But then criticism comes. Um, there's a redundancy, there's a sacking, there's a moral failure. You might suffer anxiety and depression. You might have a family breakdown or a slip up in your performance. Whatever it is, the graph just goes the wrong way to what you're used to. And so this is what's happened to Elijah. Things were going well, now they're going badly. Now the test of his character finally comes. And his instant response um, was not to pray and fast and, and get stronger in the Lord. His response was to run. And so run he did. He ran out into the wilderness as far as he could get from humanity and he just did it all in his own strength. Uh, and he had nothing inside when it really mattered. So let's pick it up now in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 4. It says, Elijah went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat. And I love this next bit, for the journey is too much for you. It's a real shock for us, you know, when our brain realizes that we actually don't have what it takes to fulfill uh, what we thought we were going to be able to do. It's almost like our calling rate checks that our character can't cash. And, we, and, and that's a terrible disruption to our soul when we realize, you know, when the pressure's on, I actually don't have it. And Elijah's come to this point. You know, we've performed for God. People have spoken our praises. Our star's been rising. But suddenly life finds a way, as it always does. It conspires against us to push us back to the level of our character. And so this is a confronting moment for him. And he says the interesting phrase from there, which tells all about how he was thinking about himself prior to this moment. He says, I'm no better than my ancestors. What he's saying there and the inference is he actually thought before he was better than his ancestors. He had this hubris going on of the prophet. He had the hubris of, of things are going well for me, this, this confidence that comes out. We don't know what it's like. We don't, we don't know how to steward the humility that, that knows 
Sometimes our star rises, but there's always a flip side of that coin. And so this is a first for him to go through that. And so in that sort of situation, we may do what Elijah did. He, he complained, he ran, he blamed, um, but eventually he gets to this moment as he did in the desert where it's just us left with God in the desert. And uh, it's almost like God says to us there, you know, at the end of the day, despite all the great things you've done in my name, I needed you in this place because I want to take you where you can't take yourself. And to do that, I need to form your character. And I love the, what the, the angel says, this journey is too much for you. And it's in those really dark moments, just when we think, you know, Elijah could not have been further away at that moment from God's will for his life. And God wants to restore him. And he says, but even that journey of restoration is too much for you. I'm going to need to take you through this. I'm going to need to carry you because you can't do this on your own. And so in Elijah's instance says, there's supernatural strength comes from the food and water that's been left there. And uh, he leads him ultimately to a cave where God wants to speak to him, recalibrate his life, redirect his life, tell him what's important and, and tell him about what's going to happen next. Some commentators have read this story of Elijah and they said this is where Elijah's ministry essentially stops. I don't think that could be further from the truth. I think it's an upgrade. I think what happens here is that the character that's been formed allows him, it equips him with this new humility to go and upgrade his, his performance in the sense where he's not just about him and what he says. Now he's going to leverage it. Now he's going to appoint kings. Now he's going to appoint a successor. Now he's going to start a school of prophets. He's going to leverage through succession so people can carry on the work beyond him. Look at what God says in 1 Kings 19. The Lord said to him, Go back now the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint, king, uh, sorry, anoint Hazael as king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel-Maholah, to succeed you as prophet. You see what he's saying there? I've got kings for you to appoint. I've got succession to come through. I haven't finished with you. I'm redirecting you into a whole new phase of ministry. And it requires the humble to be able to do that. It requires character to do that because now the ministry is not about me. Now it's about how I can leverage that into other people. And so even God's difficult words bring clarity. You see, you see the story from the woman at the well, from, from Gideon, from Esther, and from the story of Elijah. God's words break through. They redefine what's possible. They redefine what's coming next. And they always wrap that in this cloak of God being with us. So I wonder what God's word is for you today. Perhaps you're at the well. Perhaps you're like the woman at the well in John chapter 4 where you can see how life's treated you and it's gone badly for you. But, but now God says to you, I'm here with you now. It's okay. We're going to get you through. You're okay with me. Maybe you're like Gideon where you just see the problems and you're just one of the world's whiners. But he wants to invert that as he did with my life. I was, I was one of those whiners about church life for a little while there. I just, I just wanted to walk away from it. But God came and met me in that place, as he did with Gideon, and says, how about you become part of the solution instead of talking about the problem? And the rest is sort of history in that sense. Maybe you're like Esther, where you, you feel like it's time to have courage. Your, your voice feels small, but the cause is so big, and the time is now, and God wants you to work. Maybe it's time for that voice to be heard. Not with arrogance, not with being pushy, but with humility. And let the cause itself and the solution to that cause speak for itself. So people aren't looking at you, they're looking at what matters, and that's the cause. Maybe you're like Elijah. Maybe the journey's just too much for you, and you finally realize that. And maybe it's just time where he needs to pick you up and form in your soul something completely new, so that only from that place can you see that this isn't about you anymore, 
This is about what you pass on to a whole new generation. But to hear God's voice, you've got to hush your own voice. Sometimes you've just got to stop talking and just start listening because what he has to say won't sound like what you have to say. We all need to hear God's word. God's word matters. It makes a difference. But we've got to pause our soul long enough to be able to hear that. So I pray that today that will be your story, that you'll be able to pause long enough to hear God's word, to know God's heart, to know his presence in a way that you understand you are not alone, your story is not over, and there's a whole new potential available. So bless you today with that. Please log into the, um, the content for discussion and application, and we pray that God will bless you and speak to you through that. See you next time.